You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This week, and um, really at the risk of sounding cliche, it's a, it's a study about a thankful life. Now, a little back story, just so you appreciate where we'll be this morning in Psalm 100. I had the opportunity to do a staff devotion a few months back where I talked about uh, Romans 1 and how a thankless heart leads to discontentment and wrong thinking and ultimately sin and death. And I thought about the contrast that a thankful heart would lead in the opposite direction. And so from that moment, I really wanted to teach this particular psalm, and I worked on the study, got it all together, and then thought, well, maybe I'll get a chance uh, to step in for Pastor Damien on a Sunday evening and uh, teach this psalm. And then I got the call, you're on for Thanksgiving Sunday. Okay, I think we're going to do it Thanksgiving Sunday then. So here we are. So let me read the short psalm to you. We'll pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Our psalmist writes, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his two gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, this morning we are of all people as followers of Christ, those who have been redeemed from sin and death, who have had our sins washed away from us, both past, present, and the sins we don't even yet know we'll commit, our names written in the Lamb's book of life, the inheritance of Christ guaranteed to us, and an eternity of joy beyond description, all promised to us. We of all people on earth should be a thankful people for who you are, what you've done, and what you promise yet to do for all of us. And so this morning we pray that as we dig into your word, into this psalm of thanksgiving, Uh, that it really would not be cliche, but that we would recognize that Thanksgiving is more than the last Thursday of every November, but it is day by day a life that is lived manifesting that Thanksgiving in all that we do and all that we say that you might be glorified in our lives and that the lost would see something different in us. And so, Lord, teach us this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll notice in the Bible that you're holding, and I forgot to say, if you don't have a Bible, if you lift your hand, we've got men that are going to come down the front row. Sorry, I forgot to do that. They're going to come down the front row. If you don't have a Bible, lift up your hand. They'll be happy to put a Bible in your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please accept this as a gift from us. So anyone that needs a Bible, just go ahead and raise your hand. All right. That's kind of how I got my first Bible, by the way. I got an old King James uh, when I first got saved. And uh, somebody had torn out like a number of the minor prophets. I didn't know they were supposed to be there until I looked at the index. So (laughs) anyway, but that was my first Bible was a gift like that. So these Bibles you're going to receive this morning are a complete Bible. No one's ripped out the minor prophets, so you're in good shape. Well, you note in the superscript above the psalm that the translators have added a title a psalm of thanksgiving, and that is the theme of this psalm before us. It really was to remind the pilgrims and Israel as they gathered together in Jerusalem for those three annual festivals, the festival of Passover, Pentecost, and then at the end of the harvest season, uh, tabernacles. It was that time for them to worship the Lord, and so this psalm is to remind the people of God that they are supposed to come before his presence with worship and with thanksgiving, but not just an outward demonstration. More importantly, he was concerned with their heart. That is, it wasn't to be just ritual or routine, but it was supposed to be thanksgiving that came out of the heart expressed in all of the beautiful worship that took place at the Temple Mount. For God alone deserves our worship, 
but he is concerned that our worship is done with a right attitude. A contrast to Psalm 100 would be Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 to 15. You might jot that down and read that a little later this afternoon. But what you find in Isaiah chapter 1 is that God, through the prophet Isaiah, is rebuking the same people that Psalm 100 was written to, his people, the Jewish people of the Old Covenant. But in that psalm, he calls, their, uh, calls them to attention because their worship was busy with ritual and with routine and they were doing all the things prescribed by the law, but their hearts were far from him, evidenced by their wicked and unthankful lifestyles. In fact, there in Isaiah chapter one, he calls Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow, I mean, that, that's That's pretty depraved at that point when you call your chosen people Sodom and Gomorrah. But what he was communicating is that while they were, again, outwardly very busy with the act of worship, it was all just phony because in their hearts they had depravity. They oppressed their neighbor. They oppressed the poor. They were involved in immorality and godlessness. And so God takes them to task and rebukes them for all of that. God's desire for his people, which would include us today, who've come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, is our thankfulness would be expressed not just with our lips, but more importantly, with our daily lives. Not just at three annual festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, but day by day that our lives would be characterized by thanksgiving. You might wonder how we might demonstrate that thanksgiving, and that's exactly what this psalmist gives us this morning in this short five verses. Number one, a lifestyle of worship is expressed in a life that is dedicated to serving God. Number two, it is a life submitted to God. And number three, it is a life that is sacrificial to God, all of which demonstrates in our worship, in our daily activity of life, a heart that is filled with thanksgiving to our Lord and Maker. So beginning in verse 1 and 2, notice, by serving, we demonstrate or manifest our thanksgiving. The psalmist writes, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands, serve the Lord with gladness, and come before his presence with singing. And so the psalmist begins by calling the worshipers to demonstrate the sincerity of their worship through service to God and service to people. That's why in verse two it says, serve the Lord with gladness. Now again, that's an appropriate place to begin any conversation about how we're to live our lives. In other words, the foundation of a thankful life, a foundation of a godly life, is a foundation that's built on serving, to serve God and to serve one another. Now, that's contrary to our human nature. I don't know if you remember, but before Christ, in that previous life that we all lived, our human desire, that fallen nature, was characterized by a Darwinian kind of viewpoint, which is I want to be served, I don't want to serve others. And that's because our sin nature is completely contrary to the nature of Christ. Our sin nature, again, defined by and dominated by a Darwinian drive, is eat or be eaten, might is right, striving to make others serve us rather than looking for an opportunity to serve one another. And separate from Christ, every single one of us is born egocentric and self-serving. The problem, however, is that once a person becomes born again, they oftentimes bring that same self-serving attitude with them into their experience with Christ and their relationship with the family of God. And that's why the psalmist reminds the people of God, both in his day and our day, that we are to serve the Lord every day and to serve one another as a demonstration of our thanksgiving to God. Now, let me illustrate it this way. We will often notice in church, whether in our own behavior or in other believers, that there can be a lack of a self-serving or a lack of a others-centered lifestyle. I notice it most especially as a senior pastor at the church we planted in Arkansas where a new family in the church would typically make a call and say, hey, we'd like to sit down with you over coffee and just talk to you about the church and you know, your, your vision and your goals and what you think you, God's called you to do in this community. And I'd always uh, 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 you know, look forward to these kind of conversations as an opportunity to share with them what God was doing in and through our fellowship that was distinct and unique in the body of Christ in Northwest Arkansas. 
But oftentimes the conversation would move towards the ultimate question in which the head of the household, typically the father, unless there's a single mom household, will look at me in the eyes and say, what can your church do for me and my family? Which immediately communicates the wrong attitude. In other words, they don't have the right foundation that is the foundation of serving others. Because ultimately what they're saying is, what can I get from you? How will you serve me, Pastor Paul, and the church that you pastor? No, no, that's the wrong attitude. That's the wrong foundation. What we should be doing is when God calls us to a new community and we're looking for a church to to plant in, is that we should be seeking the Holy Spirit and asking God, what local church do you want me and my family to plug into where you can use the gifts that you have given to us to serve others? The problem, however, goes not just with a pew, but into the pulpit. And what I mean by that is this. Church growth programs that market how to grow your church, make your church bigger, get more tithes and offerings, more numbers, and all of that kind of stuff, all of them are based on catering to the wants, not the needs, the wants of people. Because they know that if they cater to the wants of the people, providing the entertainment they want, providing the gymnasium they want, the coffee shop they want, the you know, goldfish uh, anonymous uh, support group that they want, whatever it is they want, if you cater to those needs, then you'll grow your church and you have the numbers. The result, however, is that when you do that, you create consumers, not disciples. And the problem with consumers is that they are never satisfied with what you provide nor are they fruitful in their work for God because they never seek to use their gifts to serve anyone. They're all about what you can do for them. Can I remind us, I remind myself also, that the gifts of the Spirit that are given to each and every one of us, as listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4, All of us in Christ have been given a gift. You go look at those gifts, and I encourage you to do this. Every single gift is given to each of us for the benefit of others. None of those gifts are given that we might be exalted in ourselves. None of those gifts are given that we might just pat ourselves on the back and go, hey, I have the gift of prophecy, or I have the gift of healings. No, no, they're all given into our stewardship to touch and to bless other people, to serve one another. And as, so, as we do so, to serve the Lord. Well, one pastor friend of mine, noticing that problem within the church to create consumers rather than disciples, suggested that we might put a sign over the door as you enter the church that would read this, enter to worship, depart to serve. In other words, come get equipped and then go out and use the gifts that God has given you to serve one another and to represent Christ. And that really captures the theme of this psalm as he calls us to demonstrate our thanksgiving to God, not just with our lips, but by our behavior, first and foremost, the foundation of which is to serve God and to serve one another. Now, I appreciate that God doesn't just call us to do something without first demonstrating how to do it. And of course, our role model is Jesus Christ himself, God in human flesh, God the Son, the Son of God, where in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, looking at his disciples, and I would say by way of extension to you and I this morning, he says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last and the servant of all. And then Jesus continues, he says, for even the Son of Man, now think about this, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, who spoke the worlds into existence, who created and maintains all things by his power, he says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our role model. And perhaps most beautifully demonstrated, second only to what he did on the cross, was the night before the cross in that upper room where Jesus was seated with his closest disciples, passionate, as Luke tells us, to share this final meal with them before he endures the suffering and the pain that was coming in the cross, desiring to spend this time communicating his final thoughts to them. Instead, at that last meal, you go read it in John 13, and we find the testimony of the disciples is that they were all arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Three and a half years with the Lord, and they completely missed the main memo, which is, I'm calling you to serve one another. So while they're consumed with arguing with one another, they never notice that Jesus departs from the room. 
He takes off his outer garment, wraps himself in a towel, and returns with a bowl of water and a sponge or a towel or whatever, and then begins to wash the dirty, stinking feet of the disciples. The one person in the room who should not have been doing that was serving his disciples by washing their feet. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture, in Jewish culture, even a Hebrew servant is not allowed to wash the feet of another person. Oh, no, that was reserved for the lowest of the low Gentiles. And here, the king of the universe, the savior of the world, humbled himself to serve his disciples by washing their feet. And the point is that here, Jesus' attitude demonstrated for us, willing to be the servant of all, even to the point of death on the cross that he might redeem us from our sins, communicates how we are to serve one another. In fact, there in John 13, Jesus says, you call me master and Lord, and so I am, and you've seen how I have washed your feet, now you go and do likewise. In other words, this is a model that you all are to follow. Well, notice it's not just the outward expression of service that's important. Verse two, the psalmist tells us that we're to serve the Lord with gladness. That is, God isn't just asking us to serve, but to serve with a good and a glad attitude. Now, if you have children, (laughs) you may understand this illustration, or as a child yourself, you may remember doing this. But you may on a Thanksgiving, you know, uh, Thursday, right, after the family is feasted and the trash can's overflowing and there's plates, you know, disposable plates and cups and all that, and then the leftovers or whatever they, people didn't eat are all stuffed together and the garbage can's overflowing. You may call your 14-year-old, hey, honey, would you take out the trash? Oh, and then watch the behavior. He's like, what oppression. The burdens that you place on me, right? I mean, he's like, Uh, it's like 12 steps from the kitchen to the garbage can in the driveway. Really? (laughs) And yet it's like, oh, I'll have to break away from the television, you know, and I want to watch this game or I've got whatever. It's like, really? (laughs) Well, friends, our Heavenly Father will oftentimes in life, in a spiritual sense, ask us to take out the trash and to do it with a good and a glad attitude. I'll use by way of example uh, my nephew who um, just this last Thursday had the opportunity to spend Thanksgiving with. And um, without getting into details, he's made a lot of really, really bad decisions in his life. In fact, one of which almost brought his life to an end. And so he's lived a very difficult life, a very confused life. Again, a lot of bad decisions. But I couldn't help but notice the change in his demeanor this last Thursday as we just hung out as a family. And he began to describe to me the work that he's doing. He lives in Oakland and he works in San Francisco, which means he rides his bike to a bus stop, takes a bus for I can't remember how long to get to a place to walk 20 minutes to the BART station, the BART station into the city. And you would think with that joy on his face that he might be working for, you know, some big, uh, uh, you know, uh, internet company where he's pulling in like six figures. No, he works as a social worker with the homeless And his job is to go into the homeless communities throughout the city and encourage people to come in and get tested to make sure that if they've got HIV or hep C or whatever, that they can get the medical attention they need. In other words, it's the, in a sense, taking out the trash, dealing with the lowest of the low and and the people that are in really awful, difficult places that the majority of Americans, and in fact, some Christians, would never go to. And he has found contentment and joy and satisfaction in serving others. And my point is this, if a non-believer can find that kind of joy in service because that's the way God's designed us, how much more in Christ should we find joy in serving one another, doing the very thing that Christ has modeled for us? When I think of servants, by the way, I can't help but make comment on how blessed we are as a fellowship. (laughs) You know, not every church has the kind of servants that we have here at Calvary Chapel Modesto. You probably noticed as you drove into the parking lot that there's guys with a little yellow vest riding their bikes around the parking lot. And they're just there to provide security to make sure that no one breaks in your car or steals your Cadillac converter during service, right? They're there to make sure that that single mom with like five kids all under the age of seven trying to herd them into the, you know, to the children's wing, right? That they all get there together. Not one of them, you know, takes off like a little lost lamb. And then once you get to the the doors of the fellowship, what do you find? Smiling, loving people with warm personalities that want to shake your hand and greet you and they're so glad to see you at church and you're like, wow, it's the first friendly face I've seen in a week, right? Somebody actually wants me here. 
And then you come in and you find that the children's church is staffed full of volunteers who teach and care for our children. We have people that lead worship for the adults and for the the women's studies and for the children and for us here in the sanctuary. We have people that come in and clean the church. You may not know it, but there are people that come in during the week when no one else is here just by way of volunteer and they clean every single armrest in the sanctuary to make sure that when you come in, you don't go like this and go, ooh, right? Like, you know, what was that? You know, where somebody's, hurt you, right? No, that's all been clean so that you come in and you can put your hands down in peace, right? Knowing that you're not gonna pick up some virus or disease. We've got people that cook for us. I think of Thursday here, we had over 200 people for our Thanksgiving dinner. That's a lot of turkey, right? I mean, well, somebody cooked all that and the potatoes and the green beans and all the refreshments and everything that went with it. And I think of the people in the facilities that keep the trees trimmed and the lawns mowed and the water working, change the light bulbs. The people in our IT department, our ushers, our greeters. I mean, it just goes on and hundreds of people that just all they want to do is bless you and me by doing their part to serve us in the body of Christ. And the point is this. That is what Christ has called us to do. But unfortunately, some, of course, have come and when they realize that they're not going to get the pulpit after being here for three weeks because we didn't recognize the gifting. Now, you'd think I'm making this up, but I literally had a conversation with a guy at that back door after teaching on Sunday morning who told me that he was called to come into a church and then meet with the leaders, the pastors, and tell them how to run the church. And he told me they had been to over 40 churches and no one yet had taken him up on his offer. Now, I was surprised, as you were, right? No, I told him, listen, bro, no one's going to give you that kind of access until you show your servant heart. No, leadership is built on a foundation of Christ-like character. That Christ-like character, as we just read in Mark's gospel, is to be the servant of all, just as Jesus himself. And the reality is that if a person doesn't have a servant heart, they are not qualified to lead in worship, to teach from the pulpit, to do anything in the church because they're going to do it all with a self-centered attitude, all with the attitude of drawing disciples after themselves, all with the attitude of getting all the attention rather than pointing it to Jesus. We need to recognize that you and I have been called to be servants, not just here and now, but throughout eternity. As Pastor Damien just finished the revelation a couple of weeks ago, we find that in the eternal age, Revelations chapter 21 and 22, guess what we're going to be doing, right? On the beaches, right? Sunbathing, you know, some kind of a coconut with, you know, some wonderful drink from the fountain of life. No, no. There will be sanctified service throughout eternity because God has designed us to do that and that's where we find contentment and joy, There is, after all, only one God, and the rest of us who have been created by that one God have been called into his service. Well, secondly, we demonstrate our thanksgiving through, and you're not going to like this word, submission. (laughs) Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. Now, To us, that seems pretty obvious, but there's a whole vast number of people in the world today that need to realize they are not God, right? It is he who has made us. What a shock, right? And not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, I understand that the psalmist doesn't explicitly call us to submit in verse 3, but I would encourage you to look at the context as the verse implies that very strongly. Again, notice the words, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not ourselves. In short, the psalmist is reminding you and me this morning that he is the creator, or God is the creator, and we are the creation, Therefore, he is in charge, and you and I are not. He gives the orders. Our duty, our privilege, is to submit and obey. Now, notice next in verse 3 that he reminds us that not only is God our creator, but he says that we are his people. Note the uh, possessive words used there. We belong to him, and we are the sheep of his pasture. 
And here he reminds us that in addition to being our creator, that God is our good shepherd, we are his sheep, therefore, he's the owner, we're the property. He leads, our job is to submit joyfully and follow wherever the good shepherd leads. And again, what we're seeing here is a word picture created by the psalmist that communicates our relationship with God. It's a relationship to a creator, to a shepherd, reminding us that not only does he transcend the universe as the creator of all things, but as our loving good shepherd knows each of us by name and is taking care of each and every need in our life. It reminds us then that our part is simply to surrender, to submit, and to follow, all of which is an act of submission. Now, I probably don't have to say this, but for the sake of clarity, I want to communicate that our human nature dislikes submitting probably even more than serving. Because I can serve and still not be submitted. (laughs) In other words, I can put on a pretty good show and make everybody think that I'm serving with the right attitude. But to submit really requires the, the, the crucifixion of our flesh and of our will. And yet we see in the testimony of Scripture that a thankful attitude is always demonstrated by a willing submission to the Lord. And in part, that's because when we understand our relationship to God, that he created us, that he died to save us, that he's preparing a place for us to dwell with him through all of eternity, it leads us to a life of thanksgiving because of all of the care and compassion and concern he's shown us. And out of that love, then, it's easy to submit to him. And so we submit to God because he is our creator, he made us, he owns us, and is our shepherd because he died for us and now leads us, reminding of his great care for us. As we come to understand God in those two roles, the psalmist wants us to recognize that he loves us. In other words, he created us to be the object of his affection. Even though we sinned and turned away from his love, he sent a savior to redeem us that we might then enjoy his love once more and for all of eternity through faith in Christ Jesus. And the point is this, that when we understand that all that God is and all that God does for us is motivated by his love for us, it makes it very easy then to submit to him. Because the reality is that submission is much easier to the person that we know loves us and everything they do for us is for our blessing and our benefit. And I find myself much more inclined to surrender and submit to the love of Christ than to say the oppression that I find in the world. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is, Paul and the psalmist remind us that there's this strange paradox that we experience in life when we actually choose to submit to God's purpose and plans. And that is when we choose to submit to his purpose and plans, we find this is what we've actually been made to do That's where we find contentment, peace, joy, satisfaction in life. When we rebel against that, that's where we're trying to find something over here or something over here that the enemy's, you know, trying to tempt us away to do. But those things that promise contentment and joy and peace and satisfaction always end in disillusionment. No, no, God knows exactly how he made us. He knows exactly what will bring that joy to our lives. I'll illustrate it this way. If you know anything about me, you know there are two things in my life that are a prime, um, well, I can't say an agape, but more of an eros, a love on the physical plane, and that is coffee and chocolate. Now, I don't don't mean any coffee and chocolate, by the way. I'm not talking about, you know, I won't even use names because I don't want to offend anybody, but if you go with me to a coffee shop, literally I can walk in it within one step, breathe in the air, I know if I want a cup of coffee here or not. I know immediately if they're gonna pull a good shot of espresso, if they're gonna pour a great pour over, because I can tell by the smell that they've taken care into the creation of the final roasted bean, right? It's, I'm not a fun person to go to coffee with. Anyway, chocolate's the same way. Oh my goodness, I have been to the pinnacle of chocolate heaven, separate from what we'll have in eternity, 
and that is Widmer in Brussels, Belgium. Now, I'm not talking about the Widmers. They have a Walmart. That I'm fine. That's a fine chocolate, right, to use to feed your pets or whatever. I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I didn't say that because somebody here is going to say, I actually represent Widmer chocolate to Walmart. It's like, oh. okay, it's great chocolate. Anyway, but the Widmer chocolate in Brussels from Jean-Paul Widmer, it's the chocolate to the royal family of Belgium. In other words, they can have anything they want. This is the chocolate they want. Oh, I... I when I was there, I had an article with me from the Chronicle where a, a reporter had spent the entire summer going through Europe, going to all these different chocolate boutiques, and at the end of it, rating them like the top five. Every time, it's, it's Widmer's in Brussels. So if you go to Brussels, you've got to go there. And when I went there, I had that article with me, and Jean-Paul Widmer II grabbed me by the hand and like Charlie and Chocolate Factory, took me off for a private tour of the whole chocolate factory. Oh, my goodness. Now, I got to tell you, my, I was tempted because I, I only bought a, a kilo, 2.2 pounds of that chocolate, because it's expensive. <laughs> and when we got home, I had bought one dark chocolate square that was filled with passion fruit. And I'm not talking about the little plastic jelly kind of fruit they put in most chocolates. I'm talking about real passion fruit harvested by like native Polynesians, you know, hand delivered to Jean Paul. Anyway, I only had one, and I thought, oh, you know, Cindy and I will split this because I only got one in the whole collection of chocolate. I took a bite, and literally, like, I, I was had a vision. I was standing, like, in the waters of, like, Tahiti, you know, the warm waters brushing back and forth across my legs. I could smell the, the floral in the air and all that, and I'm just like, whoa, and I thought, I'm eating this whole thing, and I thought, oh. The Holy Spirit got a hold of me and I shared it with my wife. But anyway, here's the point. If all I did was eat chocolate and all I did was drink coffee, I would not be a healthy camper. Oh, no. It's good in moderation, but you can't make your, your diet on that. You need, you know, the whole food triangle, which I try to make chocolate and coffee, but there's other things that are supposed to be in there, right? And the point is that spiritually, that's the same way. What God has called us to do, he knows how he designed us. We're not designed running chocolate and coffee all day, nor spiritually are we designed to seek to be served. No, he's designed us to serve him and to serve one another. That's where we find contentment and joy. And then finally, he tells us in verses four and five, by sacrificing. He says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and come into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Now think about that, the three words in the human language that most people don't want to hear, serving, submitting, and now sacrificing. Really? <laughs> three words that run contrary to every fiber of my fallen nature. And yet, if we're going to live a life of thanksgiving as the psalmist calls us to, we demonstrate that thanksgiving through serving, through submitting, and now sacrificing. Now think of the context to whom this psalm was originally penned. Under the old covenant, he's talking to the people of Israel who would bring sacrifice to the temple, again at Passover, at Pentecost, and at Tabernacles. And one of the sacrifices that a man or a woman could bring was called the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. And this was a voluntary sacrifice by which you as a man, you as a woman, as a child of Israel, just were so overflowing with thanksgiving for what God had done in your life, for God had answered your prayers, how God had sustained you, had taken care of you, whatever it was, you would bring an offering. You'd bring an animal along with a baked cake and some oil. You'd place in the hands of the priest. And then as he offered it as a burnt offering, you would lift your hands publicly and begin to sing his praise, to thank him vocally for all that he had done for you. In other words, the thanksgiving offering wasn't just stuff, it was also the expression, that sacrifice of praise. And here in our text, notice in verse four, he says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and to his courts with praise. Be thankful to him, bless his name. In other words, you're speaking, blessing his name. Of course, in context, the gates he mentions in verse four are the gates to the city of Jerusalem. 
by which you accessed the Temple Mount. And then when he says the courts, he's talking about the temple proper. In other words, where you went to offer your sacrifice, both the animal and the, and the baked bread and then the oil, but also that sacrifice of praise. In other words, it's a public demonstration of your thanksgiving to God. Not just what you are sacrificing materially, but in terms of your praise and your thanksgiving to God. It was all supposed to be a joyful public expression of thanksgiving. So let me illustrate that in a New Testament context. Luke 17, you might just jot that down. I'm looking at verses 12 to 19. For those of you who are familiar with the scripture, it's the account of the 10 lepers that come to Jesus for healing. So let me read it to you. It says, then he, speaking of Jesus, entered a certain village. And there met him there 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. Now, again, if you met 10 lepers, right, it's like you just start backing up normally because you recognize that that's a contagious disease easily spread by touch that what you don't want to do is be touched by a leper, let alone 10. So these lepers, they understood the, the cultural norm and so they stand afar off from Jesus. They're not gonna approach Jesus. So they stand afar off and we read in verse 13, they lift up their voices and they said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priest. And Jesus' instruction was, you go, and by the time you get to the temple where the priests are to receive your Thanksgiving offering, you will be cleansed. And you can offer that Thanksgiving sacrifice for the cleansing of your leprosy. But it tells us in verse 14, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw he was healed, returned, now listen, with a loud voice glorified God. In other words, he's doing exactly what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 100, to express that with a praise of thanksgiving. And he fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks, and the text tells us, and he was a Samaritan. In other words, the one in the group who wasn't actually a child of promise, a child of the old covenant. So Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed? And of course, all 10 were cleansed. But where are the nine? Jesus wondered. Were there not found any who returned to listen, give glory to God? Again, how do you do it publicly, professing and explaining his thanksgiving to Jesus? Except this foreigner. And Jesus said to him, arise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Again, we notice that the Lord sent all 10 to the priest to the temple to show themselves thankful for the cleansing that they would receive. But Jesus honored the one who came back to express his thanksgiving verbally and publicly. Well, for you and I, what we are called to do is the same thing. In other words, just like the Samaritan leper who was healed, who was cleansed, the Lord would have us publicly express with our lips the thanksgiving that we have for his goodness, his mercy and truth as the psalmist writes there in verse five. And when we do that, we'll be an encouragement to the believers around us to do the same thing. And it's an invitation also to the unbeliever who watches us and hears us even in the difficult times of life, giving thanksgiving to the Lord, praising his name, acknowledging his goodness, acknowledging his mercy. It's an invitation to those who don't believe, who find so little to be thankful for in this dark and dying world. The reality is that sometimes people need to see and hear the testimony of God in our lives before they're willing to take a step of faith to experience the same thing in their lives. And so when we express that thanksgiving publicly, it's an invitation to the unbeliever and an encouragement to the believer to do the same thing. Well, you might wonder, okay, well, where's the sacrifice? Because in the psalm, it's like you're coming to thank God for the good things that he's done for you, maybe for a, a great harvest or maybe for a new child or for great health or, or, or whatever. What about when times aren't going so well? Paul, writing to his friends at Thessalonica, he says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And Paul's point is to remind us that there are going to come times in our life that are difficult. There are going to be times where, where sorrow seems to overwhelm us. And it's not easy then to be thankful and especially to thank the Lord out loud. 
And yet the man or the woman who truly trusts that the Lord has their best interest at heart will be able to give God thanks and praise even in difficult times knowing that God has their best interest in heart. Now that doesn't mean we ignore our pain. Doesn't mean we ignore the pain that others are experiencing. Just pretend, oh yeah, God bless you. I know you just you know, lost a leg or whatever. Hey, but you got one. <laughs> no, it's not saying that. He's not, he's not being sadistic. Rather, what Paul is communicating is that in those difficult times, our trust and faith in God is so great that we know that he's going to use this difficult experience, the sorrow that's in our life, in this fallen world, for our good or for the blessing and the benefit of others or to advance God's kingdom. Just as Pastor Damien shared in our study last Sunday when he was talking about Paul's experience in that Roman prison, where Paul recognized that though he's chained these Roman soldiers 24 hours a day, seven days a week for over two years, he gave God praise and he worshiped him, put pen to paper to tell others about it because he understood that if he wasn't imprisoned, he would have never had the opportunity to share the gospel with Caesar's personal bodyguard and have the gospel go all the way into the, the household of Caesar himself, the emperor of the ancient world. And so Paul looked (laughs) at his chains and said, you know what, had I never gone to prison, I would have never had this opportunity. And so Paul's not excited to be in prison, but he was excited and thankful and praised God for what God was doing through his imprisonment. And the point is that you and I are also called to give a sacrifice of praise, or as the author of Hebrews writes, give a sacrifice, sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Again, to encourage others around us to, to, to look at our lives and even in difficult times to see that we are trusting in God, faithful, knowing that he's going to work it for good in our life. And so the psalmist calls us to live a life of thanksgiving, expressing our thankfulness always, even when it requires a sacrifice of ourselves. Well, before we leave the psalm, the psalm of thanksgiving, I need to inform you and call your attention to the danger of ignoring the message of the psalmist. In other words, you could just say, oh, here we go. Thanksgiving, oh God, that was clever, Pastor. He did a Thanksgiving sermon at the week of Thanksgiving. That's brilliant. No, no, don't ignore the exhortation of the psalmist because a thankless life leads to an impoverished life. Let me illustrate it this way. We look no further than Romans chapter 1, where Paul, talking about the guilt of mankind, tells us where our sin began. In other words, he starts somewhere and ends in a progression that leads to eternal death. And here's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, speaking of those who have rejected God. He says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Now listen, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, just as the psalmist declared, he is the creator and we are the creation. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. Uh, The wicked of the world have neglected that truth and that ends in a thanklessness. They were not thankful to God for who he is and what he's done. And he tells us that all of that leads to futile thoughts and a darkened heart. And Paul's point is this, that thanklessness ultimately leads to discontentment. That discontentment perhaps with my position in life, the people in my life, or the portion that God has given me in life. That discontentment then as it breeds in our heart, right, and creates a, a root of bitterness, leads to wrong thinking. Wrong thinking like, well, I deserve more. I deserve better. I deserve different than what God's allotted to me. Or you might be guilty of having said at one time, listen, if God really cared about me, he would have given me X, Y, or Z, or he would have fulfilled this, or he would have answered my prayer in the way that I wanted him to. And the point is that that wrong thinking and that discontentment then leads to sinful behavior. Because what happens is when I'm discontent, again, with the portion in my life, the people he's put in my life, the position that he's given me, if I sense in my heart that if I'm no longer thankful, then what I do is I reach out of my own will and take what I think is gonna bring me that contentment. 
and it always leads to destruction. In other words, what I know I do not need in life, what I know is not really going to bring me contentment, the enemy makes look so enticing that I go for it anyway, and what I find instead of contentment, peace, and joy is disillusionment with life and just despair. And let me illustrate it this way. I wonder what part, if any, thanklessness led to that very first sin in the garden. In other words, rather than being thankful and content for the garden full of blessings that God lovingly crafted for Adam and Eve to meet every single desire and need that they had, we find them immediately at the foot of the one tree that God forbade them, discontent somehow with the garden that God had made for them in their enjoyment. Again, think of it, a garden filled with fruit to satisfy every possible desire for taste and texture that a person could ever want. But thanklessness led to discontentment in the heart of Eve to see instead of the garden that one tree. And in the scripture tells us that she looked at it and she said it was pleasant to the eyes. She saw it would be good for food and desirable to make one wise. As if... God hadn't already provided everything they could ever want and need in the rest of the garden. Well, thankfulness is the cure to thanklessness. In other words, if thanklessness, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, leads us to discontentment, to futile thoughts in our darkened heart, it seems that if I go the other way towards thankfulness, that it should lead me to a fruitful thought, and to a heart illuminated by the fire of God's goodness in my life. In other words, if I choose to be thankful for all that God is and all that God, God has done for me, it should bring contentment and peace and joy in my life. And in fact, it has, and it continues to do so. In other words, I know not just from Scripture, but by personal experience, that when I choose to be thankful, this is my portion. When I'm thankless, it's futile thoughts, it's darkened hearts, right? It's, it leads to discontentment. So the psalmist encourages us this morning as the children of God to choose to live a thankful life that's manifest by serving him and serving others, submitting to him and sacrificing to him just as the psalmist would have us do. And all of that will bring all the joy and the peace and contentment we, we need. Again, not just one day, the fourth Thursday of every November, but Monday through Friday, week in and week out throughout the year. It's God's desire is that our thankfulness, again, would not just be expressed that one day, but more importantly, every day of our lives. And as we do that with a glad heart, we'll find contentment and joy. But if we choose to live a life of thanklessness, our lives will be dogged with discontentment and a gnawing discouragement that is directly linked to a true thankfulness in our life, or lack of, I should say, so by way of practical application, I would encourage you, if you don't do this already, every morning when you wake up, every night when you lay your head down to sleep, spend some time just listing the things you're thankful for to the Lord. Oh, you could just start with salvation. <laughs> wow, right? Wow. <laughs> Me? Heaven? Eternity? All of the glory of heaven? Really? Wow, okay, we could just stop there and that's just let's thank God for that for a while, right? But then it's more than that. It's forgiveness, again, from not just the sins I've committed and the sins that dog me today, but the sins I don't even know I'm gonna commit. They've all been washed and cleansed by the, by, by the blood of Christ. Freedom from guilt and shame. And then you could move to family and friends and good health. The beauty of his creation. The smell of fresh rain on good soil. Or the carrots come in orange, yellow, and purple. I mean, come on, right? I mean, one of the great arguments against evolution is the vast array of things that are just beautiful with no evolutionary need for beauty or the vast ar array of different foods God has given us. He could have just said, all you need is, you know, this little triangle here, you get a, a piece of this every day, three meals a day, just a little like power bar or something. No, you get to make salads with 14 types of lettuce, Right? Three different colors of carrots, red onions, white onions, green onions. <laughs> it just goes on and on. And then think of the laughter of children. Really? I mean, 
this week I got to watch my grandkids run into the water at the beach. Just run in and then wait for the wave and run away and the wave come and, and just laughing. You know, it's just, I mean, thankful for all that. The world will notice if we live a life of thanksgiving. A life filled with joy and gladness that no matter what circumstance we're in, we can find something to praise the Lord for. And that will draw people to Christ. Because again, you look at this world separate from Christ, there is no hope. And there's very little to be thankful for. And whatever they are thankful for is quickly taken away. We have an eternal hope in Christ Jesus. We have a home waiting in heaven, as Pastor Damon described in the closing chapters of the Revelation. A a home that he has been preparing for us since he returned to heaven. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm coming back to get you. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait right, the river of life cascading down the multiple levels of the new Jerusalem, the the tree of life there that we eat from, right, a coffee shop on level one where I'm inviting all of you for the best mocha that you've ever had. Now, I don't have that on divine authority. I'm just hoping. But anyway, you get the picture. Let's do this. As I close in prayer, I want to ask God to make what we've talked about this morning a reality in our experience, not just words on a page in a book on our lap. Father, would you take your word, which we know you have promised, that it would not return void, but you have promised that it will accomplish exactly what you designed it to do. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would just imbue into our life, into the very fabric of our being, a a deep-seated thankfulness for who you are, and what you have done for us, what you are doing for us, and what you've promised yet to do. Lord, we pray that even in the difficult and and sorrowful times of life, that your spirit be quick to point us to thanksgiving and to show us that we can have a sacrifice of praise even when times are tough. And we pray that as we do that, that we would be an encouragement to others and an invitation to those who don't yet know you. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be thankful as a people because we know that's where our peace, our joy, our contentment and satisfaction is. And so, Lord, make it a part of our experience, not just words we've read on the pages of this Bible, but, Lord, the reality that we experience in life. And, Father, finally, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't yet know you and the joy that we've talked about, the peace and contentment that we've talked about, Lord, I pray right now that they would surrender their heart to you and come to know you as their Lord and Savior and then partake for the first time in that thanksgiving. And so, Lord, we commit all this to you and we do so in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Paul Lester. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Paul's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.